0: Welcome to the Providence Church Podcast. This is the final episode of our David series. In it, Pastor Dwight explores God's truth as David knew it, in addition to how we can come to know God's strength in our own lives. Join us next week as we begin our Galatians series. But in the meantime, visit us online at propchurch.net. That's P R O V church.net. Let's get started. Many, uh, John, John Ortberg is a pastor, uh, been around uh, a number of churches over the years. And he said, many years ago, he said, I was walking in Newport beach, uh, which was in Southern California and with two friends. It was two of us were on staff together at a church and one was an elder at the same church. So it was three guys together. He said, we walked past a bar where a fight had been going on inside and the fight had spilled out into the street. Just like in the old Westerns when they used to come tumbling out of the saloons and they were wrestling and fighting and fists were flying. That's what happened. And several guys, he said, were beating up on another guy. And this guy was bleeding from the forehead. And we knew we had to do something. So we went over to break up the fight. And he said, I don't think we were very intimidating. All we did was walk over and say, hey, you guys, cut that out. And uh, it didn't do much good. And then all of a sudden, he said, these guys looked at us with fear in their eyes. And the guys who had been beating up on the one guy stopped and started to slink away. He said, I didn't know why until we turned and looked behind us. And out of the bar had come the biggest man I have ever seen. He was something like six feet, seven inches, about 300 pounds, maybe 2% body fat. Huge, huge man. And in fact, Ortberg says, we called him Bubba not to his face. That was like our name afterwards, Bubba. Bubba didn't say a word. He just stood there and he flexed. And you could tell he was hoping that these guys would try and give a a go at him. He wanted them to. And all of a sudden, he said, my attitude was transformed. And I said to those guys that were fighting, you better not let us catch you coming down here again. He said, I was a different person because I had great big Bubba behind me. I was ready to confront with resolve and firmness. I was released from anxiety and fear. I was filled with boldness and confidence. I was ready to help somebody that needed helping. I was ready to serve when serving was required. Why? Because I had great big Bubba. I was convinced that I was not alone. I was safe. If I were convinced that Bubba were with me 24 hours a day, I would have a fundamentally different approach to my life. If I knew Bubba was behind me all day long, you wouldn't want to mess with me. But he's not. I can't count on Bubba. Again and again, the writers of Scripture pose this question for us. How big is your God? And again and again, we are reminded that the one who is greater than Bubba has come. And you don't have to wonder whether or not he'll show up. He's always there. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live your life in hiding. You have a great, big God And it is a foundational question. You know, I've been thinking about that question a lot this week as we come to the end of this series on David. David knew a great big God. There's a lot of stuff with David we've talked about for the last eight weeks and, you know, great things about David, heroic things about David, courageous things, and then some not so heroic things. Some painful failures, some sin and shame. And he had all of it. But one thing that he testifies to is we're going to read this morning is I know my God is a awesome, large, vast, powerful God. Hmm. And all of us, we face a lot of things in our lives and sometimes the things that we face seem really large. So adversity comes your way and sometimes it is heavy and trouble comes and trials that you walk through. And there's the unknown. What's going to happen next week, next month? Don't know. There's some unknown things that we all face. And failure. Having to come back from. And so what we need to know, as much as anything else, is that our God is big enough. That he's able, no matter what we face. And so David could testify to that very truth. The shepherd boy who who slayed the giant could say that. The warrior who saw God's strength On the battlefield, David won a lot of battles, and he could say that. The king who ruled over all of Israel, in fact, as Samuel said in 2 Samuel 8, doing what was just and right for all of his people. That's what the the writer ascribes to David. You know, that king could say the greatness of God. And the man who fell and was guilty of adultery and murder, he came to experience the greatness and largeness of God's mercy and God's forgiveness in his life. God was big enough. And as most of you know, David was also a poet, a writer who authored about half of the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in the Psalter. About 73 of those are attributed to David. So he wrote a lot of Psalms that we read and take courage from. And those Psalms help us see a portrait of the living God. And of his greatness, his vastness, his mercy, his power, his faithfulness. And so we've been working through First and 2 Samuel during this series. This morning we're coming to chapter 22, which is actually a psalm, a psalm, if you will. In fact, if you go to Psalm 18, you'll read pretty much the same thing, almost verbatim. There's a few minor adjustments in there, but almost the same thing. Psalm 18, we're at 2 Samuel 22. So if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to that second uh, book in Samuel's, uh, by, as, he, as he writes, in chapter 22, verse 1. In fact, it says this, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And David said, David sang, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation he is my stronghold my refuge and my savior from violent men you save me i call to the lord who is worthy of praise and i'm saved from my enemies the waves of death swirled about me the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me it's like a tidal wave coming in The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. "'Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire from his mouth. "'Burning coals blazed out of it. "'He parted the heavens and came down. "'Dark clouds were under his feet. "'He mounted the cherubim and flew. "'He soared on the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness his canopy around him, "'the dark rain clouds of the sky. "'Out of the brightness of his presence, "'bolts of lightning blazed forth. "'The Lord thundered from heaven. "'The voice of the Most High resounded.'" He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning and, and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath from his nostrils, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord... Was my support. He brought me out, verse 20, he brought me out into a spacious place, a broad place. And he rescued me because he delighted in me. This chapter, if you will, and and is, and we'll read a little bit more later, but this this chapter is David's hymn of praise. Uh, Many of you have grown up singing that classic hymn, How Great Thou Art. This is David's How Great Thou Art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. Right? This, this is the, the essence of what David is proclaiming in the, the greatness of God in his life. And David is personally testifying to the power and the presence of God in his life. And so, if you note the, the repetition in the, the first few verses of the word my, David uses it often. Verse two, verse two, the Lord is my rock. And my fortress and my deliverer, he is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior from violent men. You save me. And so David is very personally testifying. He's, he's declaring truth about God, but he's also declaring this is this is who God is to me. This is who God is. And this is what I have experienced of him in my life. So twofold, we learn about who God is at his core and in his essence, but we also, hey, this is how David got to see God and experience God. On so many occasions in his life, David had witnessed and experienced the the largeness, the bigness of God. And the images just pour out from his heart and his mouth. So a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, a shield, a horn of salvation, a stronghold, a refuge, my savior, he says, he declares. I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, because I remember this quote oh, back when, maybe not this past winter, but last winter, when we did the character of God, the nature and character of God series together. A.W. Tozer said this, and I come back to it this morning. Tozer said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's really true and profound. What, what, we th- what we think about God, what comes to mind when you think about God reveals a lot about who you are. Hmm. What, we, what, when, what you think about God affects every part of your life. It affects your outlook on life, your view of people, your response to difficulty and disappointment, your sense of meaning, and morality and purpose—it all comes back to what do you understand about God? What do you, what do you, when you think about Him, what comes to your mind? And so we want to start this morning by zeroing in on this truth that God is our our rock. In fact, if you look at the end of the chapter, uh, verse forty-seven, look where he, how he sums up this chapter, verse forty-seven to the end. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock, capital R. Exalted be God, the rock, my savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes from violent men. You rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Again and again and again, rock. So the first point this morning that we're looking at together is that, number one, God is our refuge in times of trouble. David knew that. And when you think about rocks, we're not talking about field stones. I used to pick up some field stones. My uncle had a farm. My grandfather had a farm. And so when the spring came before planting, we would get the flat wagon out and we would go out and pick stones, uh, rocks. Now when I was 7 8 years old I got to drive the tractor. So I didn't lift up a whole lot of big heavy rocks, but there was some some you know when I was a little guy I could you know but grandpa big rock. Now but we're not talking about field stones. David's talking about rocks. And I found a couple pictures this week. This is this is a rock. David would have, would have thought about when he's. He he see that opening? There's actually people. You can't see them, but there's people inside that opening. And so you could hide inside of that opening. And when, you know, you remember the stories about David running from Saul in the wilderness and hiding out in caves, the caves of Adullam. This is the, the imagery that comes from they would be going through the wilderness trying to flee for their lives, and they'd find a rock that was their refuge. There's another picture here. Uh, The next one, look at that rock. That's actually in the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the uh, place called uh, Canyon de Chey. And so those of you who have ever been to New Mexico, we have a mission out there to the Navajo Indians that when I was in high school and in college, uh, the the church at Highview took a couple mission trips to Canyon de Chey. We went to Arizona or New Mexico and then went out to see the Canyon de Chey. That's some serious rocks, In fact, I have a picture in my office. I don't have a couple pictures. One of my dad who's sitting there in Canyon de Che looking around, worshiping as he sees the rocks all around him. And so when you think about, this is what David is thinking about when he thinks about the rock, God is my rock. Massive, huge, rocks in which you could hide, rocks in which you could find protection, Uh, Brian Wilkerson wrote this. He said, think about putting yourself in the sandals of an ancient nomadic people and making your way through a a barren wasteland or a desert. Rocks would be a welcome sight. Rocks, if they were big enough, would often provide shade from the sun and maybe shelter for the night if there was a cave or a ledge. If If there was vegetation in those rocks, it often signaled the presence of water or a spring or a pool. If you were being chased by an enemy, rocks offered a hiding place and protection from flying arrows. If the rock was set up high, it became a natural fortress, easily defensible, a vantage point from which you could follow the movements of your enemy and repel his attacks. And the interesting thing about this image of God as a rock is that it assumes we're going to be in trouble sometimes right? That you only need a fortress if you're under attack. And you only need a hiding place if someone's chasing you. So when we say that God is our rock, we're not saying that bad things won't happen to us. We're saying that bad things won't conquer us, right? We're going to experience bad things, but they won't overcome us in the ultimate sense because even heaven is the ultimate shelter, the ultimate destination, the ultimate place of safety and blessing. And so ultimately, God wins. No matter what, God wins. That's the story. Hmm. So the question this morning is, do you have a rock in which you can take refuge? when the storms of life threaten and the winds blow and the lightning flashes and the rains pound down, where do you go? To whom do you go? What are you relying on in those moments? Who are you relying on in those moments? And anything other than the living God, the rock. Mm, Good luck. Good luck. Hmm. Second truth here this morning, God gives us victory when we battle, number two. And so you hear the phrases that jump out again and again. David's given testimony. You saved me. You delivered me. You rescued me. Again and again and again. These phrases just keep coming and coming through repetition. In fact, he, he uses the, the image there, I think it's in verse 3, that he is um, the image of the horn of my salvation and the horn of salvation symbolizes strength. It represents authority and power. It is the saving power of the king. David says, you are the horn of my salvation. You have the authority to save and to deliver and you have In fact, it's interesting to me as I was studying this week, you go all the way then into the New Testament to Luke chapter 1, verse 69, and there the prophet, or there the the guy, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, is prophesying, and he's talking about what is to come, this one who will be born, and he says in verse 69, God, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he's referring to the birth of the Christ child. The Messiah is coming. The horn of salvation is coming. The one with authority to save is coming. The one with power to save is coming. The saving work of the king, it's coming. And Zechariah, so he's, and he's tying it back to the, the house of David. The horn of salvation that God began in David is now coming to pass. Jesus is coming. And I love that, how God ties the old, the new together. David says when the bottom drops out uh, of your life and I am surrounded on all sides by my enemies when violent men are trying to hunt me down and he experienced that, he says, what do I do? I call to the Lord, the one who is worthy of praise. And when I do, I am saved. I am rescued from my enemies. God gives us victory when we battle. And notice, these are not first world problems that David's talking about. You know, we got, we got a lot of first world problems. So we talk about the price of gas. It's a first world problem. We talk about the price of groceries, and they're high. But it's, we, got, we still can get groceries. It's a first world problem. He's not talking about when my air conditioner breaks. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about life and death. But this is when it's on the line and there's no other options and I'm I'm up against it and my enemies are surrounding me. God, you are the one. God, you are the one that comes. Life and death. In fact, that picture is is painted for us in five, six, and seven in the verses there. And notice how he's, he's a poet. David's got this gift from God. So he expresses truth in amazing ways, profound ways. He said, the ways of death swirled about me. I mean, the waves were all around me. I felt like I was getting overtaken by these waves. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, like a tidal wave is coming, a tsunami is coming, and I feel like I'm being overwhelmed. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, he says, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. He heard my voice. He heard my, he heard my cry. This is David's testimony. And then he, he I'm not going to read all the verses again, but 8 through 20 God comes. Look what God did. And so 8 through 20 is a poetic metaphor of the intervention of God. He could have just said God came, but he, 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 he elaborates in, in the spirit. Oh, and this is what it's like. This is, what, this is the sense of God coming. And, and, the, and the imagery is amazing. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the heaven shook, and they trembled because God was angry. Why does David say that? Well, part of it, and this is really important for us to see, is that that God's anger is connected to his love, right? So his anointed one is under attack. His anointed son, I, I anointed you king, is now being threatened, and God will protect his anointed. And so he's coming to the rescue. He's coming from heaven to David's rescue. This is how David sees and communicates the power of God coming. And so God, the Bible does tell us that God is jealous for his own. He's jealous for his own. His love is in in a healthy way, jealous to protect. And so here he's angry for, I'm going to come down and I'm going to deal with those enemies. I'm going to, because I have a commitment to you, David. I have a plan through you, David, and my son is going to be born through your line, David. And so I will preserve that. I will come and rescue you. I will lift you out. And that's exactly what he does. Verse 17, the outcome is that God reached down from on high and took hold of me and drew me out of deep waters. And so the, the truth is David's talking about deep waters. The, the, I love it. The God who parted the Red Sea is the same God who rescued David. I don't know if you put those two together. Same God. Same, we sing that song. Same God. Same God who brought his people through the, the, the sea, out of slavery, into the promised land, part of the waters, rescued his people. Same God who, who grabs a hold of David and pulls him out when he's under threat and under attack. God's commitment. Have question, have you ever been in deep waters needing rescued? And so think about your life. I've been thinking about mine this week. I can... I got at least three or four major things in my life where God just shoo, 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 pulled me out, pulled us out, helped us when we were up against it. You, you have those in your life. If you, if you think and consider your life and the span of your life, and the longer you live, the more times whew, God's, God's and sometimes you don't even know it, but God's doing something to protect and provide and care for you out of deep waters. The great work of God, verse 20, the great work of God. He brought me, David says, he brought me out into a spacious place, a broad place. What is the broad place, the spacious place? It is the place of freedom, a place of joy, of wonder, of blessing. And that's what God does in our lives through Christ. All of us have been brought, if we're in Christ, we brought into a spacious place. More freedom, more joy, more hope, more peace more love. That's the work of Christ. I love it. Chuck and I talk often about this. Chuck, we've commented together. He's talked about this truth. It's, it's true. There, Jesus talks about the broad road and the narrow road. And here's the thing. The broad road actually gets narrower as you travel it. It starts out looking, this is a great big road. Lots. I can do anything I want. Lots of freedom. But you know what? Here's the thing. As you move down the broad road, it gets more and more narrow, more constricting, because that's what sin does. Jesus said the sin will enslave you. And so pretty soon you think this is a great big wide road. And then as you pursue your own way, you end up getting more and more confined and more and more in chains. But then there's the narrow road, Jesus said, that leads to life. And the narrow road looks confining at first, but as you walk the narrow road of obedience and trust in, the, in Christ, it actually opens up. It widens because you experience more of Christ, more hope, all the things I just talked about, more freedom, a spacious place. You end up going down this narrow road and you end up, whew, it's a big, wide place. And so it's the exact opposite. The world, broad road, broad road. It gets narrower, but the narrow road gets wider. So there's the the kingdom of God. And I I pray that lands on your heart. I know I've been thinking, Chuck, and I think often about that. Talk about that. That's what David said. David said, God has done this. He's put me in a spacious place, a wide place, a broad place. Love that truth. And don't miss this. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why did he do it? Because he delighted in David. And here's the story this morning. He delights in you. The message of Jesus and the atoning work of the cross is that God has set his eyes on you. He loves you, John 3, 16. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. So he delights in you. And that, that's a, the, he, he wants to bring you into a broad place and a spacious place. And so praise God for what he has done. And then the third thing here this morning is that God makes us more. And what do I mean by that? Well, look at, this is an interesting section, verse 21 down to 30. And here's what it says. David says, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him, and I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord turns my darkness into light, and with Your help, I can advance against the troop. And with my God, I can scale a wall. So the question is, how can how is David able to say what he says? I mean, you've been here. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, what the? Are you kidding me? Bathsheba, Uriah, hello? Like really? These expressions here in these verses seem so self-righteous. David's not claiming to be sinless, is he? It could sound like that. And some commentators actually believe that this chapter, 22, was actually tied to a time before Bathsheba and Uriah, perhaps back at chapter 7. That's when David really got... Things solidified. The throne was finally his. All the enemies and the house of Saul was dealt with. The divisions in the kingdom were dealt with. The enemies were you know, defeated. And now he's on the throne. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But I, I actually, as I was studying that, because I spent a lot of time this week pondering these verses. Going, man, this is hard to know. And, and I was, as I was praying and listening and understanding, I like, I like what Alistair Begg had to say. He said, even before Bathsheba David was hardly sinless, and he was not perfect in all of his ways. In fact, there's that phrase, a man after God's own heart, right? David, the man after God's own heart. What's that mean? Well, it's more the place that David had in the heart of God than it is the place that God had in the heart of David. So I'll say that. It's more how much God set his heart on David and loved David and chose David than it is. Now, David loved God, yes, devoted to God, yes, but there was a lot of stuff in David. There was a mixture, a lot of mixture in David. A man for God's own heart, but God had his heart set on him. All that happened with David was God's own choosing. God chose. And the mystery isn't that David loved God. The mystery is that God loved David. That's the greater mystery, and that's the greater mystery for all of us. Not that we love God, but that he loves us. In fact, we love him because he first loved us, the Bible says. We love him as a response because he first loved us and showed us his love, poured himself out for us. That's the mystery, that God would choose us, that he would love us. David experienced that firsthand. Hmm. So the truth is, David, who is the forerunner in the line of Christ, also is on the receiving end, if you will, of the, what? and I know this phrase comes up, the imputed righteousness of Christ. It was transferred to him by faith. And I'm going to show you that in a minute from Romans. By faith, what happened uh, as Christ did that work on the cross, that, that our, in fact, for us, our rags, our dirty clothes are exchanged with the clean, fresh, beautiful righteousness of Jesus given to us as a gift We don't deserve it. We're not worthy of it. We don't walk sinless, but he enables us by his love, pours it out. Look with me in Romans chapter four. This is the gospel, and this is where it gets so cool with David too. Romans chapter four, if you find that in your Bible, awesome text. There's a lot of Old Testament giants, but certainly Abraham and David are two at the top of the list. So chapter four, verse one, Romans. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He received, he was made righteous because of his belief, his trust in the living God. Not because of what he did. Verse 4, now when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the wicked. Now, wouldn't you say David qualifies based on what happened, you know, what we've learned in the last couple of weeks. His faith is credited as righteousness. Verse six, David, there's the name. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness righteousness apart from works. Blessed, in verse 7 and 8, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Do you remember 2 Samuel chapter 12? I think we talked about it last week when Nathan comes And says the Lord has put away your David confesses and Nathan declares the Lord has put away your sin, David. You're not going to die. He has taken away your sin. So here's the thing. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, David speaks as God sees him. That's a may only a work of the Holy Spirit. By faith that David could say, this is God's work and my righteousness because I've been given it from him. It's not of my own, really. The scandalous, amazing grace, God's unfailing love shown to David and shown to us that God dealt with David as a forgiven and cleansed man. And that's how God sees us in Christ. And that's why I say when God makes us more, that's how he makes us more. That we could never be that on our own. We're not worthy. None of us. But God makes us more. David knew that truth. And he declares it in those verses there in 2 Samuel 22. I love that. It's the gospel that comes right tucked into 2 Samuel. And so praise God for that. Hey, I've really, really enjoyed this series of messages. And, you know, again, with David, awesome king, great warrior. We, we covered so much territory. A lot of awesome battles. Flawed man. Broken man, you know, went through some pain, had to confess, had to receive God's mercy and grace in his life. But it gives me hope. I've been looking at David through fresh eyes and I'm looking at myself through fresh eyes My man, it, David, this great man of God, and he needed Jesus Christ righteousness. He needed the grace of God in his life. I need it. I need it. Thank you for listening to this latest sermon. For more Prof. Church, check out our YouTube at Prof. Church Lancaster, follow us on Facebook at Prof. Church Life, on Instagram at Prof. Church, or visit our website, profchurch.net. Thank you for listening, and be sure to make it a great day.